Oh, hey, can I ask you a favor? Sure. I wrote a story, and it's too long to be a short story. It's too short to be literally anything else. This is just like a thing I started writing, and it turned into 20,000 words. And if I'm going to put it out, I think probably the best environment for it to be released would be as a piece of audio on this channel, if I, in fact, have your blessing to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I'm going to do that. These are Mr. Cogger's 15 Minutes. Written and recorded by me, Colin Sweets. Chapter 1. Between manual wind watches and automatic ones, to Philip Cogger, there was a clear superior. He believed automatic watches to be sharks, accessorial predators of the unpunctual and lazy. To his designer's brain, they required an angular shape and to be free of meek colors so to transmit environmental dominance. He believed them to be graceful and swift in their hunt of the bleeding quartzes and digitals everywhere, and merciless in their authority. Most importantly, he believed their shark-like nature was rooted in their need for constant motion. The movement of an automatic watch is propelled by the momentum of life itself, and needn't ever be wound as long as the wearer is attentive enough to his progress through being. This was the basis of Mr. Cogger's entire philosophy on watchmaking, to always keep his operation ticking. Unlike an automatic watch, the manual ones could let a person down. They could stop ticking. And for his customers, this was unacceptable. Indeed, when the entire world seemed to slow its rotation and seize its natural order, Mr. Cogger found himself entirely out of time. Young Philip was the son of clothes washers, a noble, if unglamorous, line of work. His parents owned a laundromat on a city block with one too many laundromats, and their machines were either routinely out of service or all too easy to rig. His father operated the store and his mother managed the finances, but when his mother fell ill and died, his father was forced to take on the bookkeeping, and such a thing was never his strong suit. Philip was eight years old at the time. It was, in fact, Philip who first caught on that the imbalance of high customership and low profit was a result of the public information that machines 4, 9, and 11 would return a person's quarters if they stopped the wash one minute before the end of the cycle. When he tried to explain this to his father, Alvin Cogger scolded him for suspecting such things of his good customers. It angered Philip that people were taking advantage of his family, particularly when he came to understand that laundry should be a fairly consistent business with little overhead and an immunity to the volatility of worldly circumstance. He decided very young, though he kept it a close secret, he would not endeavor toward a vocation in which he could be exploited or duped. But still, the entrepreneurship of his father was bred in him, as was promptness, mutual respect, and the value of a well-timed operation. Perhaps this is what led to his fascination with the watches people wore. Philip's father, Alvin, wore on his wrist a Citizen Classic SS with an alloy steel case around a well-preserved black dial and a silver bracelet with a butterfly clasp. The watch had a manual movement, which meant it could lose time if not wound every day or so, and indeed Alvin often forgot to wind it. But it made little difference as his appointments were few and far between. The watch had been a gift from Alvin's Gentleman's Club on the eve of his wedding, and it meant everything to him. But it was insignificant to Philip, as were watches in general, until 
when he was nine, Parker Hatfield entered their business. Parker Hatfield, evening 10, was an icon of the day, a cultural symbol of poise and knowledge. His rich vocals governed every night from the hissing zenith Alvin had propped in the ceiling corner above his main counter where Philip would sit with his homework. His broadcasts would guide the family's perspective on seemingly all important matters, and he would do so with the essential artful blend of depth and charm. Parker was the first celebrity Philip ever saw, and in that moment, the bar was set very high for the class of people around whom he could be starstruck. It was late afternoon, and Philip had just arrived from school to the usual symphony of motored tumbling that quaked the vinyl floors. Alvin was lurching over a newspaper and didn't look up to greet his son. He never looked up for anyone who would enter, and so his head was still down when all six feet three inches of Parker Hatfield approached the counter, with teeth whiter than a Maytag and a pleasant smell of teak accompanying him. When he said, Good afternoon, Philip was already staring up, his mouth agape. Alvin, a short, sandaled fellow, suddenly looked up to see the splendid newsman smiling back. Hello, he stammered. Good, uh, very good afternoon to you. I'm wondering if you can help me with a little jam I'm finding myself in. Parker spoke in the same calming meter Philip and Alvin knew from their television. Of course, sir, said Alvin. How can I be of service? Philip noticed Parker was carrying a black dry-cleaning sleeve. I have to do an interview with the mayor in just over an hour, and I'm afraid I've gotten salad dressing on the lapel of this suit I plan to wear. Alvin stared at Parker's face through the end of his sentence, as if to be waiting for him to move on to his next story. To break the silence, Parker added, And normally I could wear another suit, but we're a long way from the station where I have other clothes, and I'm not sure I could make it back before the traffic. Yours is the first cleaner I spotted, and I hoped I could pop in on short notice. Now I understand you have other customers, but I wonder if we could arrange a deal wherein I might compensate you in exchange for expedition. Alvin just kept listening as if the words were for a nation and not specifically him. Parker shifted focus to the launderer's hands. My, what a marvelous timepiece you have. This stirred Alvin from his daze. Oh, thank you very much. It is among my dearest possessions. I should say so, yes. What is it, 60, 61? Yes, yes, Alvin said vaguely. Parker was wearing an Omega Seamaster, which wasn't commercially notable to Philip, although he thought it made the newsman look like James Bond. In fact, James Bond wouldn't wear an Omega watch for another two decades, but perhaps the boy had an instinct about these things. But what Philip couldn't appreciate at the time were the price point or prestige of Parker's watch, and though his father's citizen was a fine timepiece as well, the classes of the makes were simply not akin. Still, Parker flattered Alvin. It's very handsome. I admire your taste. Now, I don't mean to put you out, and I'll understand if you can't accommodate me at this time, but I wonder if you can point me in the direction of a cleaner who can perform a rush job? No, no, Alvin shouted. We will take your suit happily. That's spectacular. Thank you. And you do dry cleaning as well as wet wash? In fact, Alvin's business did not perform a dry cleaning service. Perhaps the spectacle of present fame clouded his judgment, but... He did receive Parker Hatfield's suit sleeve and asked him to return in 45 minutes. It was very lucky that Parker left for that time, 
rather than waiting on their benches. Because Alvin and Philip set to removing the stain in a most unorthodox manner, involving detergents and chemicals that they had no way of knowing would be effective. It was not lost on Alvin. He might have destroyed the great man's clothes, and so he poured and blotted oh so carefully, and indeed managed to successfully remove the splotch from the fabric and the very record of time. Parker returned exactly 45 minutes later and inspected the lapel in awe. Remarkable, he said. I thank you so much for your fine work. He reached to shake Alvin's hand and added, It's a beautiful watch, really. As Alvin watched Parker go, he smiled. He still didn't look to his son when Philip said, Papa, he didn't pay you. I've told you, don't be suspicious of my customers, he barked, reaching for his watch, underneath which a crisp $50 bill had been wedged. It was the suavest thing Philip had ever seen, and he hadn't even seen it. That evening, the two coggers glued themselves to Parker Hatfield's interview with the mayor, as if it were extra innings at the World Series. The lapel on which they'd worked so proudly directly faced the camera, and if that didn't give them enough of a thrill, it was notable the mayor's suit was wrinkly and ill-fit, making Parker's clothes all the nicer by comparison. But for the joy of a job well done, Philip didn't care much for the cut of one's clothes or the sheen of their shoes. His only lasting feelings of fashion related to the preoccupation Parker Hatfield had had with his father's wristwatch. He decided a man is respected by even the most respectable if his wristwatch is elegant, and so all gentlemen should strive to wear an elegant wristwatch. From that day forward, his single love was the relationship people had to their timepieces. He would chat up strangers on the bus about the watches they wore, aiming to learn every possible tale of how one might acquire a watch and how they relate to it on the daily. By his teens, Philip could accurately decipher a great deal about a person's character simply by looking at their wrist and, like many an expert, snobbery set in, and he most often deciphered there was little character at all. To him, time was the great king, and there was no greater indecency than to squander one's opportunity to keep time respectfully. That is, until true indecency showed itself. Philip had decided by his middle teens, at exactly the time when he learned there was such a thing as a watchmaking school, that it would be where he would attend. There could be no nobler path than to serve Father Time by striving to build the finest watches ever known, and in doing this, he could use his father's entrepreneurial spirit and his own cleverness to do good work, never being exploited along the way. But he so feared having to tell Alvin he would not be working at the laundromat in his adulthood. Always assuming the conversation would evoke rage and possibly tears, he kept his dreams of watchmaking scholarship private, right up until it didn't matter anyway. When Philip was 17, Alvin's laundromat was closed by the revenue service. His best equipment was seized, and his business license was discontinued pending a back payment of eight years in taxes. Philip later learned his father's financial trouble began in the same month they met Parker Hatfield. It was not long after Alvin's wife had died, and his handling of the finances had not been going very well. At the time of Parker's visit, Alvin had thought perhaps the great figure from television would become a regular customer and would bring his many colleagues from television in to be customers too. But at least in person, they never saw Parker Hatfield again. During the period of suspension, 
Alvin's lease expired on the workspace, and he was forced into early retirement. He moved into a smaller apartment and pawned his few earthly possessions, including his Citizen Classic, for which he earned a paltry $80. As much as it hurt Alvin to part with the watch, it hurt Philip more to see it happen. Papa, I promise you something, he said as they ate canned pasta on the first night in their tiny apartment. I will find a way, and I will get you your watch back. It belongs on the wrist of no other man. Alvin smiled and rested a naked hand on Philip's shoulder. You'll be a good man, my son. But all you need to do for me is work hard and be smart so that what's happened to me won't happen to you. I don't believe what's happened to you happened because of how hard you worked or how smart you are, Philip defended. I believe it's happened to you in spite of those things. You are still a boy and I'm a man, and a man knows he must pay his taxes. But I believe the system is unfairly against you, Papa. And I believe it's unfairly against a great number of people in the same working class. Even still, I know the rules. You break the rules, you lose your watch. That's how it goes. But you loved that watch, Philip mourned. It's just a silly watch. Someday you'll realize there's more to life than some jewelry that goes tick-tick by your knuckles. Philip knew this was his open door. In fact, he said, I think a great watch is the very thing life is all about, and that's why I've chosen to make my living in their field. Watches? Alvin was incredulous. Yes, watches. There's a one-year program just two trains away that teaches the building of watch movements, and I can learn how to build the mechanisms, and then I can practice designing the faces to be unique so people will come from all over to buy from me. So you've a whole plan. How do you intend to pay for this school? I've checked it out, Papa. It's a reasonable tuition for someone who's willing to work a few nights a week, and I'm happy to do it. I'll pay my own way. And when I can build watches, I'll build one for you. But not before I've gotten back your citizen. It's only a watch, my son. You put too much worth in a raggedy old bracelet. With all due respect, Papa, I'm confident I don't. This is your dream, then, said Alvin, releasing some of the air that always puffed his chest. But not just my dream, said Philip. It's my intention, and I'm taking the two trains to pay my application fee tomorrow morning before I begin searching for a job, serving, or bagging groceries. How much is this application fee? Alvin turned to reach for the coffee can in which he stored his money. I have the money, Papa. I will not take yours. How much is it? Fifteen dollars? Here, Alvin said, handing his son four twenty-dollar bills, in case it takes a little while to find work. But this is all the money from your watch. I told you, it's only a watch. It's not my dream. But it's all that's left of your dream since it was destroyed. Rules are rules, my son. Besides, the laundromat was never my dream either. Then what was? You are. Now please take the money. Philip received the $80 without another defense. He slept on the sofa, awoke before his father, and left without having breakfast. He checked the train schedule and was sure to make time to first visit the pawn shop where Alvin had sold the citizen. He figured he could commit his father's $80 and perhaps another 50 of his own 
to reclaim the watch and still have enough money to pay his application fee. When he arrived at the shop, he was greeted by a strange man with curly hair and a vest. Hello, said the man. Philip first noticed this man wore a modified King Seiko with sequins crowning the face and two links too many on the bracelet. Do you still have this citizen watch you acquired this week? Philip asked. A classic SS? Yes, I believe, said the man in a more jaunty hiss than a voice. He teetered a bit before producing Alvin Cogger's watch on a black felted tray. The first thing Philip noticed was that the time had stopped. He lifted it, hacked the pin, and began winding it back to life. He set the time per the clock on the wall. Then he reversed the watch to find a white sticker on which someone had written two, two, five. Sorry, he wheezed. Is this your price? On the back there, yes. Philip didn't know what to say. Even if he spent all he had, including his application money, he couldn't afford to buy back his father's watch. He looked around and noticed for the first time just how crowded the store was. He couldn't rely on the citizen to last here, and if it were bought by someone else, he would lose track of it forever. Helpfully, the strange clerk was committed to greeting every new person to enter. As Philip held the watch and stroked the paper sticker with his thumb, the door opened from the sidewalk and in walked a man and a woman. Hello, said the clerk momentarily turning away from Philip. "'Can you show us your engagement rings?' said one of them. Allowing himself no time to reconsider, Philip then slid his father's citizen watch inside the pocket of his coat and dashed. "'Hey!' shouted the clerk. Philip fled between the lovebirds in the doorway and sprung onto the sidewalk. He dodged the many gaggles of people carrying coffees and briefcases as he raced down the street, hearing only faintly the second, "'Hey!' that called from the mouth just below that curly hair. He never looked back to see if he was being followed. He simply ran as fast as he could toward the train, boarded, and kept his head down for the entire ride toward his change station. All through both journeys to the admissions office of his long, fussed-over watchmaking school, he kept his thieving hand pocketed, thumb pressed firmly against the paper sticker on the watch's back. He felt the ticking in his hand just slightly out of time with the thumping of his heart. When he arrived at his destination, there was no energy in him with which to get excited over his application, and he was nearly too sweaty and exhausted to hold his pen as he filled out forms. When the $15 and his name were submitted, he thanked the administrator and retreated to the lawn outside. At last he pulled the stolen citizen from his pocket and stared at it. His thumb had completely worn away the price markings on the paper sticker. Now it showed just what he'd paid. For the first time, it occurred to Philip he couldn't give the watch back to his father anytime soon. He would first need to learn how to make watches and begin earning money for his father not to suspect anything. He dropped the watch back inside his pocket with cold scorn. At least, he thought, by then he could afford to send the strange clerk with curly hair the $225 he owed him. The memory of the clerk made Philip feel sick all over. This man wasn't at fault for Alvin's misfortune. He wasn't the revenue service. He was merely another small business owner attempting to navigate a heartless world. 
Philip promised himself then, having stolen only this one time, he would never do it again, at least not from someone who could miss what he had stolen. As this vow cemented in him over the years, his commitment to repaying the pawn shop fell to the back of his mind. It was a whole new world when eventually the debt was paid, but more on that later. As Philip reeled on the grass, he briefly wondered when the next train might arrive so he could return to town and begin looking for part-time work. Then he remembered. He was carrying a watch. Chapter 2 The film was nearly wrapped, and for a production of modest budget, things had seemed to come together with minimal difficulty. Considering his vested interest without the backing of a major studio, the movie star was extremely proud and internally relieved. On the one hand, I must exercise caution in speaking in particulars concerning this movie star, as his arsenal with which to litigate could surely decimate mine. On the other hand, as a representative of Mr. Cogger, his actions in this story have not entitled him to the protection of anonymity. Suffice to say, for these purposes, we'll say our movie star was named Brian. Yes, that Brian. He was not a movie star only in that he indeed starred in a movie. He was the star of many a major motion picture over the course of two decades, and had achieved without exaggeration the pinnacle of what is considered A-list celebrity status. As an actor, Brian exuded genre-spanning aptitude and charisma. As a businessman, he demonstrated authentic competency, with investment success not limited to the entertainment business and an estimated net worth teasing nine figures. As a famous person, he was involved in a high-profile marriage, and neither he nor his also-famous wife had yet endured any tide-changing public scandals. Both of them were in the rare atmosphere of people seemingly liked among all crowds, and either of them was somehow more beautiful than the other. It was, in no uncertain terms, very good to be Brian the movie star, and he knew it was. But he rarely acted as such, and this only made him all the more impressive. The latest movie was not one in which a lead actor should toss his weight around anyway. It was a sensitive, independent film, concerned with the trappings of fatherly absence, penned by a first-time screenwriter and financed by Brian's production company. Having spent the last several years establishing his commercial stock as a staple of action franchises, this was to be his endeavor into artful subtlety. If all went especially well, Maybe there could even be a gold statue in his future. But first he knew he must convey humility and patience and, most of all, great leadership. It wasn't just a charade to Brian. He understood his success had long been built on a foundation of the quiet excellence of his peers. He admired the hard work invested by his crew, and likewise, they spoke to others about Brian's refreshingly grounded demeanor on set. It was this healthy tone that propelled the shooting schedule to a timely completion and why Brian was left feeling wistful at the sign of its end. He asked himself what a great leader would do to show gratitude to such a fine group of professionals. After all, it was their labor that stood to flatter him, and such things deserve acknowledgement. He'd heard of movie stars buying crew members' sports cars, but the small nature of this film didn't seem to suit a gesture so grand however much he liked sports cars. He'd heard of others throwing lavish rap parties at high-end tropical resorts, but that wouldn't work either because most of the crew had other jobs to move on to and timing would never align for everybody. 
Through some brainstorming and asking around, Brian eventually found himself visiting the website of a horologist, a handcrafter of custom luxury wristwatches. This would be perfect, he thought. It's personal and sentimental, but not vulgar. The site linked to a shop in his city, an impeccably well-reviewed store called Time and Place, run by a watchmaker named Philip Cogger. There was a catalog of the horologist's many creations, a series of videos teaching the ideal methods in which a person must care for his timepiece, and a contact number at the foot of the main page. Good afternoon, Mr. Coggers, said the voice through the phone. Hi there, said Brian. I'm calling to inquire about commissioning custom watches. Mr. Cogger is booked into spring, but I can arrange a consultation if that's a sufficient timeline for you. The voice was soft and feminine. Oh, so there is quite a wait list. This being obvious to Mr. Cogger's clerk, she paused before saying, Yes, Mr. Cogger is a very careful worker and in high demand. Sure, said Brian. Of course, I understand. I'm not in a terrible hurry, but I was hoping to discuss a fairly large contract. Is there any situation where he'd consider moving me ahead on his schedule? I'd be happy to pay a premium to speed the process. Mr. Cogger doesn't view time as something to be modified, she recited. A deep voice muffled from the distance. A job always takes as long as it takes. Absolutely, said Brian. He paused, considering the use of a technique he generally reserved only for essential circumstances. My name's Brian, he said, also including his surname. I was hoping to have a series of watches ready to be gifted to my team in time for our film premiere in April. The clerk paused again. I wonder, would Mr. Cogger consider meeting with me to discuss it further? You're, you're welcome to visit our store, where Mr. Cogger works in-house. We're busy into spring, repeated the distant male voice. I'd be happy to stop in, said Brian, somehow showing his teeth through only sound. And what was your name? She paused. Gabby? Thank you, Gabby. I'll look forward to visiting the store soon. Brian hung up the phone, feeling only slightly gross. In his world, it was not unheard of to use the power of name recognition to secure certain preferential comforts, dinner reservations, theater seats, and such. He was hardly a don't-you-know-who-I-am type celebrity, but then, if one can't use his fame to procure the occasional luxury... What's the value in being famous in the first place? Besides, of course, financial freedom, material fulfillment, and universal worship. On his next day off from shooting, Brian drove a flashy roadster into the city. Coming over the crest of the main exchange, he passed a billboard larger than the facades of most houses on which his image was plastered, his perfect eyes lustfully gazing down upon every new entrant into the urban core. The advertisement was for a watch company. Brian had yet to date actually patronized this company. Instead, he wore a top-of-the-line smartwatch, the kind time itself would soon abandon in favor of an upgrade. He parked in a garage a few blocks from the address he'd found online. It was a still and sunny afternoon, but the heat of summer had faded, allowing him to justify the use of some concealing attire, a windbreaker, and a high collar, a ball hat, and sunglasses. Most people in cities walk with their heads down anyway, and Brian found if he kept a steady pace, 
the momentum of crowd recognition wouldn't catch him. Still, he stood a confident six-foot-two, with his unusually keen attention to posture earning him the illusion of even more height. His shoulders could be used as coffee tables, and his jawline could cut diamonds. He was not a thing not to be noticed, Brian the movie star, though he did make it to time and place without having to endure any awkward interactions. Aptly, the store was out of time, with its crude stone and oozing cement kissing the steel of buildings on either side. It had a steep clay roof and diagonal red muntins on every window. The sign was a hand-carved paddle affixed by two chains that dangled from a beam reaching perpendicular to the front door, and it was circular for reasons that should be obvious. Shortly after he stepped inside, Brian's discretion ceased. Gabby sat at the counter, holding tweezers and concentrating on not dropping a minuscule screw as she removed it from the back of a watch that lay face down in front of her. She was about 20, with enormous glasses and her hair tied back to prevent it snatching up any of the other tiny pieces. Be right with you, she muttered without looking up. Take your time, he said. The store's interior was quaint for its authenticity, but it lacked gratuities, save for a few framed photos hanging to boast some of their past prominent customers, including another movie star who we'll call George. There was a modest encasement of watches below Gabby's counter, but the space available to the customers was minimal, with most of the building existing beyond her. The workshop was wide open, and Brian could see a vast array of industrial machines, saws and kilns, and motorized cleaners. Even the safe was exposed, though just barely in the most distant corner. It had a classic Western aesthetic, with a large crank on its door. Safes, after all, are machines of mostly gears and careful revolutions not so unlike watches. At the drafting table sat a stump of a man in his middle age, bald and bespectacled, with a jeweler's lens and a mouth cover both attached to his face. With gloved hands, he was also performing some kind of surgery on a wristwatch and only looked up for a second at a time to glance at the television propped in the ceiling corner, which was showing the news. After a moment, Gabby placed down her tweezers and looked to Brian. What brings you in today? She managed to get this entire sentence out before realizing who he was. I called recently about having a series of custom watches designed. I wanted to stop by in person. Gabby blanked for a moment. Yes, she squeaked. I remember I took that call. Gabby, said Brian, smiling. She blushed. Yes, Gabby. It's very, really, very, very, really nice to meet you. I'm such a big fan. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you. Seriously, you can ask any of my friends if there was like one like actor who I who is the best, who I think is the best. Ask any of my friends. I they would say I would say I I I think you're the best. I'll have to ask your friends to be sure. Brian laughed. He was very used to this. You should. They're all really big fans too, of course. I'm actually a really big fan of the work you do here he said, expertly deflecting. I've been on the site, and I've read a lot of reviews. Really feels like this is the preeminent watchmaker, but with the coolness of it feeling like a well-kept secret. All the credit is his, said Gabby, pointing at the man in the workshop. Mr. Cogger, would you like to come meet Brian? In just a minute, he said softly, undisturbed. 
even if Philip Cogger had not been a film fan, and he wasn't. It would have been impossible for him or anyone to not be aware of Brian the movie star. And given that Gabby clearly was a great fan, and knew he would be visiting the store eventually, Philip surely had been notified. But the scent of nearby fame seemed to escape him. It's worth noting that none of the framed photos featured Philip, only the satisfied customers, alone with their stunning timepieces. As he waited, Brian scanned the display case, and Gabby scanned Brian. When the watchmaker finally placed down his tools, peeled away his gloves, demasked, and muted the television, he joined those at the front of the shop. Reaching for a shake, he noticed the smartwatch on Brian's other wrist and determined, gracious and talented though he might be, he was no Parker Hatfield. But really, who was? Good afternoon, he said, having to crook his neck to meet Brian's eyes. Sit down, please. Philip led Brian behind the counter to a table and some blank paper. Though not in the same state of fawning as his clerk, he did exude a quiet warmth. He collected the sheets and straightened them against the table before letting them loosely scatter as they had been. You're interested in builds from the ground up, I understand. How many, please? Yes, there'll be gifts for primary contributors to the film I'm working on. I don't have an exact head count. How many different styles is what I mean? Oh, I hadn't considered that. I suppose two? A male and female version? Or is unisex an option? It's an option, Philip said, scribbling on the paper. If we stick to a single design, would that get us closer to making this order a possibility? I suppose what I need to know, Mr. Just Brian is fine. Mr. Just Brian, it's not my only job to build high-quality timepieces, but to pair people with the timepieces they've sorely been without. Now, it's not unusual for me to design and build a watch that is then given as a gift to someone I haven't had the chance to meet, and that's okay. But when a gift is given with love, that story can be included in the spirit of the build. Do you understand? As Philip waxed to an attentive audience, he gestured to his clerk. Take Gabby, for example. I built her mother a watch on behalf of her father, who so loved his wife that I was able to make the perfect timepiece for her before I ever came to know her. And that watch so expertly suited her mother that Gabby found a love of timepieces much like mine and has since come to pursue the same calling. Now, I don't say this to flatter myself. I say it because it is my skill to include someone's special brand of love in their build. And if you're very casual about who is receiving this gift and the styles that will speak to them, I'm not sure this investment of time is appropriate for either of us. Brian smiled. I admire your integrity, he said. Trust me, I do love my team for their many unique contributions to the art we create together. Can I call you Phil? You can call me what you like. Phil, I'm an artist too. I have the same commitment to quality work that comes from the heart. If this is too large of an undertaking for you at this time, I'll understand. But I hope you won't refuse me because you think my intentions are impure, because I really do adore your watches. This will take a long time, said Philip. We will not be ready before June. Okay. Is there no possible way to have them ready by the time of our premiere in April? Months are not relative things, Brian. I can only make the watches, not time itself. 
Philip reversed the paper on which he'd been scribbling so it faced his customer. What looked like aimless markings from a different angle now came together as a rough but detailed pair of circles, each depicting either side of a classic automatic wristwatch. It had an exhibition case back with a view of the internal movement and white gold with an ivory crown. The dial was classic and tidy with a teak bezel, broad fairy wing hands, and an Arabic numeral index at 15-minute intervals. Philip had labeled all the materials and colors, from the flat sapphire crystal to the alligator leather strap. Without knowing anything about the subjects, this is what comes to mind, he said. That's perfect, said Brian. Classy and elegant. And this is what they'll cost per unit, Philip said, retracting the paper again and quickly jotting down a figure and returning it. Brian looked at the number on the page. May I see your pencil? he asked before writing a new number below Philip's and turning the page yet again. If this instead was the cost per unit, do you suppose you could be ready by April? Philip Cogger looked down at the substantial figure and grinned. So, as it turns out, I do know the subject, he said. It's you. A compromise was met. Brian agreed to cover a premium rate for the advance, and the two artists shook hands again. The movie star left Time and Place after completing some paperwork at Gabby's counter, calling her by name, and lobbing her a private wink. At this point, Philip was already back at his workstation, his face covering secure, and his news program babbling away. He didn't allow for his concentration to break when Gabby teased him. So you're Phil now, she said. Congrats on the gig. She saw his cheekbones rise, betraying a smile, but he did not respond. He wasn't sure why he agreed to a contract so removed from his traditional ethic. Maybe it was his memory of how his father bent the rules when a famous person came around. Or maybe it was because he could see how much Brian meant to Gabby. Philip cared for Gabby, and he was quite careful to preserve her affection for the art of horology. It so pleased him that he could nurture that rare devotion in someone younger than him. As he saw the future, it would have been just fine if he worked until his dexterity left him and Gabby took over the shop with the knowledge she had inherited. Plans can change, however, for the fate of a watchmaker, the release of a movie, and the world at large, in no time at all. Chapter 3 A watchmaker needs his apprentice every bit as much as the other way around. Built into Gabby's employment at time and place, was the expectation that her labor would be compensated for by practical wisdom in addition to her hourly wage. But whether or not for mutual passion, Mr. Cogger would have needed help running the store regardless, and especially through the fall and winter, as he executed the largest single order of custom watches in his career. Having never been a mass producer, the repetition of the job felt uninspired. Alternatively, it provided an opportunity for Gabby to learn by doing. She understood her mentor quite well. He was only momentarily enthusiastic in outward ways, and such moments could either be cherished for their fleeting duration or they could be unacknowledged in quiet hope Mr. Cogger wouldn't become embarrassed and click back into self-collection. Still, it could always brighten her day to hear him talk in dancing sermons 
about the origins of the world's great watch companies. He spoke of his spiritual ancestors as if they were royals, but he spoke of his natural ancestors almost never. All Gabby knew about Philip Cogger's family was that his father had passed away a few years before she met him, leaving behind a citizen classic SS, marred with patina and blunt trauma. Philip had since only removed the watch for necessary maintenance. Gabby was aware the manual wind watch betrayed his signature devotion to automatic pieces. And when she had asked him why he didn't wear something that he himself designed, he asked her if Monet hung water lilies in his sitting room. She didn't bother to say that, yes, she suspected he did, or that such a comparison is rather immodest. In fact, it wasn't. Philip Cogger was, yet proven otherwise, the finest watchmaker in the world, and he had always been kind to Gabby. Had he not been kind, she might still have been no less keen to work under his tutelage. Gabby's first timepiece was an Ingersoll Minnie Mouse with a wood grain dial and a nylon strap. By the time she met Mr. Cogger at 14, she hadn't worn the watch in nearly a decade. In her head, it was much too kiddish, though in her heart, it always pleased her that Minnie was wearing a blue dress on the dial and not her typical red. When Gabby's mother received a handmade Cogger piece from her husband, she was so taken by its beauty she insisted on visiting time and place herself to thank its maker. Gabby only happened to be along for the ride, and when Mr. Cogger asked her very frankly why she didn't wear a watch, she first told him she had never owned one. Then she corrected herself and brought up the old Minnie Mouse watch. Teenager that she was, she laughed it off and rolled her eyes. Why do you laugh? he asked. There's a long and wonderful history of cartoon characters appearing on very finely crafted watches. But it's just for kids, said Gabby. And why would a kid need to know what time it is? A kid has all the time in the world. Mr. Cogger angled his neck. I'm sorry to have to tell you, my dear, but it is only children that won't be what they are forever. For that reason, I think a child has more need to make the most of their time than any of us. Gabby smiled, as she always smiled. Tell me, he said, what color dress does Minnie Mouse wear on your watch's dial? Blue, said Gabby. Are you sure? Yes, I've always liked that it's blue, with white polka dots. Then you have a very special watch, he said. Because the dress is blue? No, because you like that the dress is blue. I'm not even sure it still works, she said. I suspect it does, but it might be in need of a little love, Mr. Cogger said, sure to give regular looks of kindness to Gabby's mother, who stood by. If it interests you, I'd be happy to take a look any time you'd care to bring Minnie here. Gabby's second visit to Time and Place was on her own a few days later. She watched in awe as Mr. Cogger removed the back of her watch to reveal the insides, which were, in her mind, far too intricate to be written off as childish. The delicate gears and coils fit together perfectly, occupying miraculously little space considering their role of organizing the entire universe for the wearer. Slowly, Mr. Cogger walked her through the names of each piece, explaining their purpose. When he was done, Minnie's hands moved with the smooth precision of a beast hunting prey, and this was apt because to her long, apathetic owner, her face was now the circle of life. 
When Philip Cogger later told Brian the movie star that Gabby's love of watches was born from the one he'd built for her mother, he was being humble. In fact, it was born in that second visit when, like time itself, Gabby never looked back. When she turned 18, she began working in the shop. For his first few years in business, Philip had employed his own father, Alvin, to manage the front desk. But since Alvin had died, Philip attempted to handle all manners himself, and only Gabby was around enough to notice it was causing him stress. She offered to take on some of the workload, but he only accepted on the condition it be a part-time employment and that she continue her conventional schooling. She acquired a large amount of theoretical knowledge and ample experience with superficial watch maintenance. But it wasn't until Brian's humongous order that she had the opportunity to apply the theory and build watches start to finish. It was essential for Mr. Cogger to have a second set of hands on the job, and it was essential for Gabby to practice. And this was the heart of their remarkable, if unlikely, friendship. And it was nothing short of heartbreaking for both of them when he was forced to let her go. It wasn't personal. In fact, it was for personal reasons Gabby wasn't dismissed sooner. But there was no safe nor feasible way to keep her on, at least for the time being, and the realization shattered Philip. He told her, It's only for a while, and as soon as things are normal again, I'll need you back. She wore a stronger face and told him she understood, and that she couldn't wait to return. What had happened was that in the late winter, many people had started getting very sick. There was conjecture relating to how it happened, and such information is widely available. I'm sure you know plenty. Suffice it to say, the issue started small, and small things are too often underestimated. It was a gradual contagion on a global scale, but for any individual's tiny life wedged between buildings, the incursion on normalcy seemed to bulldoze through in the course of a week. As a lifelong follower of news, Philip could have sooner predicted the great changes. But as many bright people found, denial was easier. Even his news consumption was based in a stringent routine, and the prospect of having to make adjustments was disorienting to his clockwork life. When regulations came down from the governments, he was forced to make some fast decisions. Essential vendors were made to operate under adjusted hours, and those deemed non-essential were ordered closed. The ambiguity came in the belief that all businesses were essential to their proprietors, but this didn't seem to hold legal water. In the first wave of fear that draped over the city, when doorknobs became dubious and throat tickles were suddenly salivary grim reapers, it seemed even love was being policed. First, Mr. Cogger considered moving some of his equipment to his apartment and dividing the shop hours between he and Gabby, but he simply didn't have the resources to supervise Gabby's work from home. All good sense pointed to his obligation to close time and place for the duration of the spread. After all, the economic toll on high-end horological services remained to be seen. Brian's due payment was sizable, but he had yet only covered the retainer, and Philip couldn't afford to pay Gabby what she would need for her own living costs. He determined in March the responsible, if disheartening, thing to do was release her. This way, Philip could continue working from the shop, behind locked doors, to complete the final touches of Brian the Movie Star's order. 
A good portion of the necessary time in Watchcraft is a weeks-long testing period, and this part Philip found most tedious. They were lonely weeks, but it was not a state entirely unfamiliar to the watchmaker whose skill set is most often found among the introverted. When the watches were complete, he arranged them in a grid on a cloth, their lugs still free of straps, which Philip tailored himself and kept in pre-made drawers. He took a photograph of the full collection and then several up-close shots of their various angles. Then he called Brian. The phone rang only once and cut to a dial tone. It was neither a busy signal nor a voicemail, and so Philip assumed the call was inadvertently disconnected, and he called again. This time, Brian answered. Hello, he demanded, the two syllables as imposing as the call had apparently been. Good afternoon, Philip Cogger at Time and Place calling about your series of custom wristwatches. In the next beat, Brian's attitude softened, but there remained tension in his voice. Hi, Phil, I didn't recognize the number. How are you? I hope you're well. Thank you, yes, said Philip. Your watches are ready. We are closed at this time, but I think it's best if we not rely on the mail service to transfer them to you. I can arrange to have you retrieve them in, as they have been saying, a contact-free manner. By this, Philip referred to the general understanding that germs were transmitted between people very easily. In response, a safe distance was encouraged between all parties of professional transactions. I have a supply of masks and gloves, he went on, and I can meet you on the sidewalk if you'll call upon your arrival. Listen, Phil, said Brian slowly, breathy. This really isn't an ideal time. I'm in the middle of putting out some fires. How about we go ahead and hold off on my picking up the watches until next month or when things are a bit less crazy? Philip couldn't believe this. But you were very insistent that the order be ready by April. Many scheduling adjustments had to be made. I know, and I'm really sorry about this. I'll still come through with what we agreed on, but we've had some scheduling changes as well, and finances for the year are a bit difficult to predict now. Philip was familiar with the rich person's technique of using group pronouns such as we to give an air of power and establishment, but he had never experienced it in a conversation about money being tight. Does this mean you won't be able to deliver your full payment until the end of the year? There was a long pause as Brian the movie star digested the words as they sounded aloud. No, of course not, he said. You've completed your end of the deal and I should do the same. You'll have to forgive me, Phil. I'm a little out of sorts. We were forced to make the unfortunate call this afternoon. My movie premiere will have to be canceled because of the crowd restrictions. The watches were a gift for my co-workers on that film, and I'm still in the middle of figuring out how to land during a tailspin. I understand, said Philip in his eternal composure. These are uncertain times for all. And for you as well, I imagine, Brian said. Philip chose not to divulge. Can we arrange a time for you to retrieve your order, then? Brian said, There's the added complication of having to set an example when I'm seen in public. Unfortunately for right now, that means I shouldn't be. I'm home with my family, but you'd be welcome to come here to complete the transaction. I can send a car. That's not necessary, 
said Philip. I like to walk where I go. I'll come to you tomorrow. Brian gave Philip the address of a neighborhood to which he had never been. It included not only a street and a door number, but a gate combination and a pseudonym which Philip was to tell the man at the entrance to the community was the name of the person he was there to visit. The pseudonym was not especially difficult to decrypt, as it was the first name of Brian's most famous film character, the first name of a superhero he portrayed. Even Philip Cogger knew this. He left the shop that evening with a sense of despair. An efficient craftsman though he was, Philip was not accustomed to being through with his entire workload, as there was always a new project to begin. He had his father's entrepreneurial spirit and his mother's enterprising instinct. Even after he had mastered his craft to an above-average standard in his late twenties, he did not rush to open a private business until the landscape better suited his prospects. When time and place was eventually incorporated in his thirties, a flurry of trend chasers propelled him. He made watches for white-collared chest puffers and their rouged-up wives, many of whom bragged about the exclusivity of their horology at cocktail parties and show intermissions. This brought along a vast assortment of clientele, all from the upper class. And when that corner of the market was flooded with Cogger product, he maintained its business as a serviceman. Meanwhile, his capital had secured, and he was afforded the ability to make watches for cheaper. Now he could sell to the middle class, the much larger class. He made pilots' watches, not only for pilots, and divers' watches, not only for divers, and dress watches for average folks who deserved as much as anyone to enjoy something fine. In a way, Philip was the Brian the movie star of watchmakers, and through all his success, he remained humble and quiet, each day sleeping and waking, coming and going, and winding his father's watch per the demand of his routine. Careful and rational as he was, it was never lost on Philip that his business could wane, but he had never planned for it to dry up so quickly. He remembered committing long ago to the importance of working in a field for which there would always be demand, like laundry, but it seemed no one could have planned for the sudden changes. Now he understood what people meant when they talked about time as a relative thing. Indeed, since the natural way, the flow of foot traffic, and the news on his television had been infected by this pervasion, Philip had lost all sense of time. And since time was such a dominant part of who he was, he feared he was losing as well a sense of himself. Also new to him was the wearing of masks and gloves outside his shop, and he didn't care for it. But then, nobody cared for it, and still it was necessary. He held a great deal of value in his bag, the watches all carefully packaged in a segmented case. In fairness, he thought, the mask and gloves did give him a sense of confidence as they hid his unmenacing features. Perhaps he was less likely to be trifled with while wearing these coverings. Not that it mattered. For his walk home, Philip barely passed a soul. Chapter 4 Phil, you brave and noble soldier! shouted Brian the movie star from behind the screen of his veranda as Mr. Cogger neared on foot. He trudged along with his heavy suitcase in hand, mask fastened over his mouth, and his glasses foggy from a subtle pant. Hello, said the watchmaker, muffled and too softly to be heard from a distance. The house was colonial, 
enveloped in trees and rustic despite its size. It had natural siding and copper fixtures and an observatory turret overlooking the stars and the nearby lake. Brian wore house clothes that cost more than the average man's best suit, and he sipped coffee from a lounge chair directly in the morning sun. Come on up, he said. I have a chair for you at a safe distance. The style of Mr. Cogger's chair was foreign to him and anyone not accustomed to relaxation. It sat low and angled, ideal for when one is free to let light reading become napping. He sat on its curved edge and laid his suitcase on the table between them. I think you'll be pleased with the results, he said, unbuckling the case. I'm sure I will, said Brian. First, though, can I get you anything? Coffee? Thank you, but no, said Philip. Can be a weekend coffee, if you know what I mean. A little splash of something extra. No, thank you, he said again. These are the woods, said Brian. No one has to know. How about I get you one and you can drink it if you change your mind? Then he called for his wife, who I shouldn't identify. She called back and Brian said, Can you fix our guest a coffee like the one you made me? Sure thing, she said. How are you, Phil? How you holding up? Okay, thank you. A little wary from constant information, but I'm healthy. The news, eh? Good, that's good to hear. Are you able to work even with the store closed? Philip paused and said, I'm not able not to work. Let's put it that way. That killer dedication of yours, grinned Brian. Well, said Philip, I guess you could say I'm dedicated to having money and food and shelter. Yes, quite true. Tough times for everyone, said the movie star. His tone became grave and his expert brood was propped on a perfect jaw, lit by a sun that never failed to kiss him good morning. Let's see what you brought for me. Philip opened the case and removed a foam cover to reveal the full series of custom watches in a grid of private compartments. They were identical, from their structure to the placement of their second hands, all of which swept in constant motion like prodigious dancers. Philip removed one at random and handed it to Brian, who took it in the loose end of his sleeve and immediately blew on it, Philip cringed. It's beautiful, Phil. Absolutely stunning work. Just then, Brian's wife appeared through a window within his reach. One extra coffee, she said. Oh, look, they're amazing. Isn't my guy a genius? Said Brian, showing it off. He took the coffee in his other hand and leaned forward to place it next to Philip's case. And there it sat. Babe, would you fetch me that other thing we talked about? Oh, yes, said Brian's wife disappearing again. Back to business, Philip said, I guarantee a 72-hour momentum, so if you or any of your colleagues are losing time in less than that, please contact me. If they're being worn, you shouldn't have any trouble. What about winding? No, you needn't wind them. I wind mine to keep the movement running in lieu of a battery. Yours are automatic. That might explain why I've always seemed to have so many watches stop working quickly in my life. I guess I just have to wear them. You also have annual servicing with your purchase, continued the watchmaker. That's essentially oiling for the band and any necessary cleaning of the metals. Though over time, patina will develop and most people tend to favor the character that brings. They are not certified water resistant, but the odd sprinkling won't cause issue. They are guaranteed to elicit compliments. This was Mr. Cogger's idea of a joke. 
Oh, so you do have a sense of humor, chuckled Brian. I do, he said dryly. I'm an absolute scream. Brian's wife leaned through the window again, her morning glory lighting the side of the movie star's jaw that the sun couldn't reach. She handed him a small box. Thanks, he said, making a moi sound with his lips and winking as she disappeared again. So if there aren't any questions, began Philip, I have a copy of your bill to review and then I can be out of your hair. You're not in my hair, Phil. There's no need to rush. You haven't even had your coffee. It steamed from the table, reeking more of booze and juniper than dark roast. I don't mean to insult you. I don't take anything in my coffee, including coffee, in fact. I don't take my coffee at all. This, too, was his idea of a joke. I find it terribly bitter. Brian laughed again. That's fine. There's no pressure. But I hoped you'd stay a minute. I wanted to show you something special that I think you'll have an appreciation for. He began raising the lid from the small box for which he'd sent. Are you a movie fan, Phil? I don't see many films, said the watchmaker. I understood the reference in your password at the gate, but I'm afraid I haven't sat down to watch it, no. I don't mean any of my films. It's okay, I don't watch those either. I'm talking about classics. Do you enjoy great films? The ones that laid the groundwork for guys like me to put on nice clothes and a little strategic glisten to make me look like I'm cooler than I am. He held the box close to his chest. I'll put it like this. Do you have a favorite 007? In fact, Philip did. And it was no contest. I'm someone who appreciates originals, he said, smiling. See, I thought that about you. And I'm someone who appreciates originals, too said the superhero portraying actor who just commissioned a large series of watches that all looked the same. He leaned forward and handed the small box to Philip. What can you tell me about this? he asked. Philip removed a protective film to reveal a well-worn Rolex Submariner, circa 1964, with an earthy dial and browning indices, both the crystal and classic black sport bezel speckled by a life of adventure. The teeth of the crown and the gaps of the bracelet had some expected residue, and there was a bend in one of the links. Still, it sat up military straight in its cradle, saluting Philip Cogger with its idle hands, stuck just past eleven. Ah, the 6538. How lovely. It's a holy grail of collection pieces, he said. May I? Please. Philip unclipped the Rolex, set the time to match that of his father's citizen watch, and began winding it. It soon ticked into motion, and Philip draped it over his palm, gently tremoring his hand to propel the movement. Then he spotted a label on the inside of the box lid. It was the insignia of a film studio, and four bold letters, D-R-N-O. Also tucked in the box was a fold of discolored papers. Wait a minute said Philip as his eyes bounced back and forth between the Rolex and its carrier. Is this? You said a holy grail, said Brian. But there's only one holy grail. So this is the original James Bond Rolex, then? Paperwork's in the box. How did you get this? I'm a businessman, Phil. I make investments. No, I'm a businessman, said Mr. Cogger. This must have cost more than my entire store. Not to be vulgar, but it cost more than every store on the street combined. 
It's priceless, in fact. But there was an auction, and I had my business manager greenlight the cash, and I'll make it back and then some. Even if I took a loss, it's worth a few bucks to get to hold it, to put it on and look in the mirror and feel like a real movie star. Brian, if you can make a watch like this your own, I can't imagine you're anything short of a real movie star, never mind whether I've seen your films. Thank you, that's very kind. And I don't think you'll have to worry about taking a loss, added Philip. There's no price too high for some people on something like this. That's what I'd hoped you'd say. Phil, I'm a successful man. I've taken risks and most of them have paid off. These unusual times in which we're all facing uncertainty and loss is an opportunity for a risk-taker like myself, someone with the means to make the most of a lousy situation. Now, I've made my donations to causes. That's essential PR for someone in my position, as is taking the delay of my movie on the cheek. But I've also had to be shrewd, financially speaking. You and I had a deal, and I'm going to honor that, but with our economics in such an experimental phase, I've had to move some money around. Philip continued rocking 007's watch in his hand, though he didn't realize he'd begun rocking it to the beat of his own heart. I'm not sure I'm following, he said. You're not just holding a watch, Phil. You're not just holding James Bond's watch, or Sean Connery's watch, or a movie fan's watch, or an investor's watch. You're holding cash. That's cold, hard cash in the form of a timepiece. The same way I can take the beautiful pieces you've handcrafted for me and sell them and five years for a profit because you've made them well and well-made watches don't lose their value. Now, I'm not going to do that because they mean something to me. They mean more to me, in fact, than that Rolex, but the cash value of the Rolex is as good as cash itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Philip shrugged and said, I understand the selling and reselling of vintage watches, if that's what you're saying. It's my business to understand it, but I don't see how that matters to our agreement. I'd like you to take the Rolex with you, Phil. Mr. Cogger couldn't believe what he was hearing. Take the watch as payment? He asked. In a way, said Brian. That watch is worth a lot more than I owe you, which I hope you'll consider confidence. The fact is, I'm cash poor, Phil. I've got a big house and a fleet of wicked cars, and I've made my humanitarian contributions, and my movie's in limbo and I have more money than most people see in their entire lives tied up in James Bond's watch, and as a result, I'm not terribly liquid these days, but I'd like you to take that watch as collateral. Hold on to it for me, and I'll buy it back when the movie comes out and I'm making an income again. Suddenly, Philip didn't want to be holding the Rolex. He carefully snapped it back into its cradle and placed it on the table. Why does it have to be this watch? Why not something else as collateral? One of your flashy cars, for instance. Phil, you don't drive. How do you know I don't drive? Lots of people who live in the city have a driver's permit, but no vehicle. Well, you worked for months on the watches in this suitcase. It's the biggest custom order you've ever completed, which means it's the most inventory value you've ever delivered. And you walked here by yourself. You didn't rent a car or borrow a car. You wouldn't even take the ride I offered you because you're independent to a fault. You don't care about speed or flash. You like grace and timelessness. You don't care about my cars, Phil. I know you don't. Fine, you're right, I don't. But you care about this watch, said Brian. Watches are all you care about. This accusation sprung two faces to Philip's memory. Those of his father and Gabby. 
you don't know me, he said softly. Not so well, maybe, but I know you're going to take the watch. Why should I? Tell me why I shouldn't call up some tabloid or post on the internet that Brian the movie star doesn't pay cash for the services he hires. Who's going to sympathize, Phil? You think anyone will consider me such a bad guy for giving you James Bond's Rolex instead of an amount of money that's less than the Rolex is worth? Way less? I don't want James Bond's Rolex. I can't use James Bond's Rolex to hire back my clerk. Oh, you let Abby go? I'm sorry to hear that. Gabby. I did, yeah, I had to. Because believe it or not, the economics of this awful crisis impact other people. And most of those who've lost work don't have a house like this behind password-protected gates to come back to. I can't believe you're playing the victim, Phil. I just handed you one of the most valuable watches in the world, and you're supposed to be a watch guy. I don't need this watch, shouted Philip. I need my money. So sell the damn watch, said Brian, rolling his eyes. Find a pawn shop that's open or put it on eBay. Make your fortune. Make my fortune for yourself. Go ahead. Philip paused to catch his breath. He picked up the Rolex again to inspect it closer. But you're not going to do that, Phil, because you're a reasonable man and you understand what's what. Brian remained ever cool. Because, you know, things will start ticking again and my movie will come out and I'll have cash flow. I'll buy back the Rolex for what I owe you and you'll be able to hire the girl back. He leaned forward, closed the small box and nudged it a little closer to the watchmaker. What has everyone been saying, Phil? These are strange times, right? I know you're no fan of time acting strangely, but I'm going to need you to wait a little while. That watch is the best I can do for you today. If you wait a little while, everything will work out fine. Philip Cogger, conversationally bested, reached for the small box and pulled it near. He stood and said, You have my contact. Please use it as soon as the finances are secured. You really are a businessman, said Brian. It might not be mutual, Phil, but I respect you. Thank you for the coffee. Well, you didn't touch your coffee, though I kind of wish you had. Philip put the small box in his case in place of the handmade watches he'd unloaded and headed for the screen door. As he turned, he said, I would shake your hand, but... I know, I know, but the contact restrictions, interrupted Brian. No, said Philip. I would shake your hand, but... I don't want to. This, too, was his idea of a joke. He re-secured his mask and made his way down the tree-lined driveway. If his glasses had been foggy on the way in, it was nothing compared to how they were now. His seething, no doubt, worsened the trapping of air. But there was little traffic of which to be wary. When Philip eventually reached the gate where he'd earlier given the password, he tapped on the guard's window and asked to be pointed to a nearby grocery store. I'm not familiar with this area, he explained. There's a good one not far from here, the guard said. It's where the rich folks all go. He gave Mr. Cogger directions, and the two traded well wishes. Well wishes were a new, unlikely standard of the age, and a silver lining, to be sure. In the before times, strangers might trade pleasantries, if not total disregard, and now they gave messages of compassion it seems, through all that feels concerning and untimely, that changing from the norm can be quite good. Prosperous, even. Certainly Brian the movie star was commanding his route toward prosperity, and however the ethics seemed to clash with the watchmaker's own, 
Perhaps there was something to be said for it. With gloved hands, Philip Cogger clutched the box of what purported to be a multi-million dollar piece of film history and crossed the threshold of a grocery store. The store was arranged in unidirectional paths to better enable physical distance, and so it wasn't until the end of his shopping, when he arrived at the register with a cart full of essentials, that he came face to face with Gabby, wearing a name tag and an apron. Chapter 5. It never felt personal to Gabby. She knew what was happening and wouldn't have expected Mr. Cogger to compromise his business for even a day just to keep his part-time clerk employed. She also never lost confidence that she would eventually come back or that her training would resume. But the economic disruption was tipping dominoes and Gabby couldn't afford not to work. Her father had once been a prominent lawyer and was forced into early retirement due to health issues well before the viral crisis. Had he been practicing, he might have represented Philip Cogger, or he could have at least directed the watchmaker to more appropriate counsel. In that case, this story would have ended differently, and I wouldn't be the one telling it. Gabby's family wasn't destitute, but they couldn't afford to subsidize her own living space, and so finding work during widespread job loss was essential, if not easy. She had a school friend who worked in the nearest grocery store. This is one of the friends who could confirm her long-standing appreciation for Brian the movie star. When Gabby asked if the store had any opportunities, the friend told her about the rich person's grocery store. Uptown, she said, where everything costs twice as much because it says grass-fed on the packaging. Why would I want to work uptown? asked Gabby. Because I hear there's tipping, said the friend. These people have cash just spilling out of their pockets, and they hand it off to anyone and everyone because it makes them look big and mighty. Nobody tips grocery store workers. That's not what I hear. You just got to be in the right place. So why don't you apply for a job there? Because I can't afford to lose this job. When everything's normal again, you'll go back to working at the watch shop, but I can't be shuttling uptown every day long term. For you, it'd be temporary and you'd make money when practically nobody else is. It was no sense talking herself out of it, Gabby thought. She needed a job, and here was a lead on one. She took two trains, anxiously dodging from seat to seat as other passengers seemed to get too close, and arrived at the specialty grocers, which was like none she'd ever seen. Sure enough, there was a quality of superiority about this store. The air had not yet been overthrown by sanitary chemicals, and the smell was that of fresh bread and summer lawns and coffee. It was hard to say whether the produce had a better sheen than the floors or better color than the vast mural that wrapped around the inside walls. On her way to the customer service desk, Gabby noticed that the exorbitant prices seemed to be no dissuasion from the rapidly dwindling stock. The first words the manager spoke to her were, Back up! I'm sorry, said Gabby, receding to a taped marker. She held her resume in a plastic sleeve in case anyone wished to wipe it down. I'm not taking resumes, said the manager, a tall woman with tighter hair than a military sleeping bag and rough palms as though she often killed time smacking them with a riding crop. Oh, I see, said Gabby. I hoped maybe you were looking for some extra hands because of the increased traffic. Oh, I have spots to fill, said the manager. I'm just not touching anybody's resumes. God knows where they've been. 
Gabby hesitated. Do you... Should I read it to you, then? No, I don't care. Do you show up on time? Yes, always. Will you take all the hours I have and not complain about too many or too few? Um, okay. Relax. It won't be too few. Great. Then yes, that would be great. We do 15-minute breaks, no more. It's not a time for lazing around. That's fine. I don't like to laze around. Then congratulations. You can start on lane 7 tomorrow. Thank you so much. Will there be some sort of training? The manager was then distracted, giving a zealous, fangly smile to an incoming customer. What? She eventually trailed off to the door at the far end of the cash lanes. As Gabby came to know, this was the cash office, where her manager would spend entire shifts, save only the 15 minutes in which she'd step out to eat some lunch. Gabby also came to learn this office was the only place in which cash may be at the end of a shift. The supposed customer tipping was not occurring nearly as often as her friend had advertised, perhaps because of the economic crisis. And when it eventually did happen, her colleague in lane 8 warned her not to pocket it, that the last person to do so was terminated and fined. Gabby's question about training answered itself in the first minutes on the job, when she was installed at lane 7 and forced to learn the equipment on her own with a never-shrinking line of tense and impatient customers. In every way, her job at the rich person's grocery store was completely without any of the glamour it may have appeared to have at first. But she wasn't one to complain, in spite of having been spoiled by her first job, one where she felt valued and nurtured in a field that spoke to her. Gabby didn't feel entitled to any professional courtesies. As their newest employee in a difficult time, she didn't expect luxury of the grocery store, and it's terribly lucky she didn't. She worked full-time shifts on an hourly wage, enjoying minimal break time, and not even so much as a decent mat to cushion her heels. And with her strong spirit, she excelled at the job quickly. She was efficient and pleasant with customers, and maintained her sunny tone while also adhering to the strict contact regulations. Still, her proficiency earned her no special favor from the manager, who was usually absent, but cold and commanding when not. Gabby and her only tended to interact at the end of Gabby's breaks, when the manager would rush back on the floor so she could wander off for french fries. Their back-to-back -back breaks were nearing when, in late morning, the watchmaker Philip Cogger entered the store in a mask. It wasn't until his cart was unloaded onto her workstation that Gabby recognized him. Chapter 6 it is entirely possible to rise above one's vulnerability. Philip Cogger had seen it happen again and again. The world loves to turn out underdog tales of scrappy independence achieving in the face of adversity. Most of these are plainly manufactured and skilled in their manipulation of the consumer. But one earnest story had stayed with the watchmaker, and he had often thought of it for the past several years. He saw this televised interview with the proprietor of a used bookstore in rural Nova Scotia, where a robbery had occurred. Strange as it was to target so ungainful a business, a masked figure had entered the store one night and took all the money in the register. And this bookseller, this Jim Short, who had been hovering above ruin for quite some time, managed to harvest his misfortune into opportunity, and he wrote a book about the experience. It was part crime thriller, part thoughtful study on family, and it became something of a hit. 
and Mr. Short was able to pull his business up by the bootstraps and reclaim control of his fate. Philip Cogger read the book and found himself amused, as a quiet private business owner in his own right and as a consumer of far too much negative information. It was a meager standard what could pass for good news, and perhaps what little there was had to tide one over. In the early days of the great changes, the beginnings of the long, long time, hefty concepts such as need and entitlement and worth and heroism were subjected to frantic debate. The staunch news people Mr. Cogger had once revered for their composure were now voluntarily reduced to semantical posturing and agenda-fueled supposition. The Parker Hatfields of the world, the Joe DiMaggio's to which a nation could turn its lonely eyes, had long been extinct, and dithering in their place were spin machines not filling out the suits nearly so well, and worse, faceless code resolving the deepest existential issues of the human race to headlines that reeked of blame and editorialism. But Philip still watched the news as he'd always done. In those days, everyone did, for it was designed as dramatically as anything featuring Brian the movie star. Indeed, the same drama could be found all around. The dread and high stakes of blockbuster entertainment could be found in once humble places so mundane as the grocery store, where invisible monsters lurked all over, and visible ones barked and quibbled with those wearing capes. Gabby's cape was made of canvas and was wrapped snugly around her front. It was both her hero's clothes and her victim's restraints, and it soared her to the train tracks where she herself was tied. Never a germaphobic person before, Philip was now adjusting to the sudden awareness of all the things he touched and the code of cooperation expected of good members of the human race in their war for safety. He found it challenging in the best of times to identify the best avocados and peaches among the bunch, and now with the added encouragement to only put one's fingers on what they intended to buy, each shopping experience felt like a new hand of cards. Even behind his mask, he held his breath while passing other shoppers, accelerating his cart toward the scant pockets of emptiness where he could take a moment to carefully browse for the sauces and spices he needed. Many of the groceries he, and all others, had hoped to buy were gone and replaced with tags requesting customers take only their modest portion. By the end of his tour, the store had seemed to shrink and Philip was exhausted, his temples throbbing from nearly an hour of intense focus. When he arrived at the checkout, he arranged his items on the conveyor belt so that their barcodes faced the cashier and could be scanned without contact. His money was in hand when he spotted Minnie Mouse in a blue dress on the cashier's wristwatch. Gabby? he said. She squinted to recognize him behind his mask. Hi. Gabby, it's me. Mr. Cogger? Oh my God, it is you. Gabby's eyes lit up, and she said, I can't believe you're here. I can't believe you're here, he said. This isn't a safe environment right now. Somebody has to do it. She managed to say this without accusation. But does it have to be you? She said, you're sweet, Mr. Cogger. Yes, I think it does. This wasn't accusatory either, but it did break Philip's heart. Gabby, I'm so sorry. My 15-minute break is coming up, she said, if you want to stay for a quick catch-up. He smiled. The old friends stood at a safe distance outside, each leaning against a concrete post. Gabby asked Philip if he was taking on much work, 
and he vaguely told her not to worry. She told him she would worry anyway, and that he shouldn't worry about her worrying. He told her it did worry him, and they agreed to stop worrying, though neither of them meant it. Then she asked about Brian the movie star, and if the order had been completed. I feel so terribly that I couldn't help with the final touches, she said. You shouldn't feel terribly for anything. I delivered the finished products this morning. They turned out beautifully, if I do say so. The good news is they'll be gifted to all different people, and word will soon get out and there'll be plenty more orders for you to help with when normalcy resumes. The resumption of normalcy was something people discussed often in these times. Presumably, they didn't mean the normalcy that farmed such a crisis in the first place. What was Brian like today? Asked Gabby in giddy wonder. Did you see his house? Was it sensational? Philip stowed the priceless Rolex among his groceries. He knew she would have found the piece fascinating, but thought better of showing it to her so to preserve the pleasure she derived from Brian's customership. The poor girl didn't need any more truths to disrupt her joy. Just his porch, he told her. He was fine. It was a brief interaction. You're always so unbothered, she said. Philip sighed. I don't think that's so. A voice barked from the other side of the mechanical door. Hey, lane seven, back on the floor. Just finishing up my break, said Gabby. Chop, chop, said the manager. It's time for mine. Don't have time for laziness. Coming, she said and turned to Philip. We're short-staffed. Two of the girls caught the virus and we had to shut down for a day. Now head office is scared we're going to lose money. Philip was appalled. It's lined up to the back of the store. Gabby shrugged. I have to go. I wish I could hug you. I'm so sorry, my dear. You shouldn't have to work here. I'll do whatever I can to get you back at the shop as soon as possible, I promise. Please don't beat yourself up, Mr. Cogger. Nobody asked for this. Hey, lane seven, screamed the manager again. Gabby groaned. Any chance you could get Brian down here? He could flash his perfect smile and tell her to get off my case? I wish I could help, said the watchmaker. It's okay, it's not your job to help. Honestly, she could help by leaving her little nook once in a while and joining us at the registers. She doesn't work on the floor with you? Nope. She holds up in the cash office because she's afraid of the virus. Only ever comes out to take her 15-minute break, which it's time for, actually. I really should get back. Please be safe, he said, tilting his head. She gave him a sort of reaching wave as she blended back into the viral circus inside. Philip mouthed, bye, from behind his mask. He collected his many bags from the cart and found the ideal posture to carry them all at once. It briefly occurred to him he should have reconsidered his stance on glamorous sports cars back at Brian's. One could have come in handy for the long trip home. The walk was onerous, and his back was seized when he finally set the groceries down. He unboxed the James Bond Rolex to find it, keeping the same time he'd set earlier, the terraneous schlepping no doubt having propelled it. The Citizen Classic he wore, the one that once belonged to his father Alvin, couldn't be so verily relied upon. It needed to be wound every day, and since routines were so fundamental to Philip Cogger, wound it always was. He unfastened the buckle and stood the citizen next to the Rolex. There was no question which watch he loved more. He wound it well and went to bed. 
But the routine of his body clock failed him that night, and sleep didn't come easily. He rolled about, trying to shake the awful image of that grocery store, where apparently rich folks did their shopping, and desperate young people of nimble finger and optimistic gaze were forced to tire themselves against the up-close riot gassing of a hostile germ, where toiled the dear girl he himself, a business owner, cut loose. He blamed himself, and it haunted Philip. He thought about Gabby's raving manager and the nerve of their corporate policy. He thought about how the wrong people were being afforded the opportunity to hide in private offices and woodland mansions, while those without the power to choose were forced to share atmosphere with anyone and everyone. He wished those who dared to put darling Gabby at the vanguard of the charge on danger would see the karma they deserved. And then he felt shame for wishing such a bitter thing. Having sweat through the sheets and not a second of quiet in his brain, Philip decided to get up and read for a while. There's no telling why he chose to pick up Jim Short's book then. Perhaps he thought reading something he'd read before would be calming and sleep-inducing. Maybe he had found that a second look can sometimes yield new lessons. It always brought him comfort to hear of the small shop owner who chose not to be powerless. Philip brewed a cup of tea and sat in the armchair by his largest window, and by morning he'd reread the entire book cover to cover. The fast-paced adventures of highwaymen skipping towns and police dodging had him fired up the way an action film starring Brian the movie star would energize most people. Mild-mannered and rule-conscious as he was, Philip was so intrigued by the other life, the outlaw life. For every day since the death of his father, he wore the watch that was a subtle reminder of the only thing he'd ever stolen. And for the hours that followed his clapping the book shut, his embarrassment for the crime was replaced by an embarrassment for not committing more. Not that he suddenly believed breaking laws was right, but what good were laws if they still endangered the weak? What good were agreements if the rich could simply break them? And what good were watches if time had stopped? After all, could right and wrong be so clearly separated when living for the former had cost him so much living thus far? Even James Bond, who was considered heroic, did many a rogue thing in the name of what he believed was right. There's something to this, Philip thought. It was too bright to sleep, and he had nothing for which to rest up anyway. He tidied his home and fantasized. Eventually he made his way to time and place, not because the work awaited, but because, even in times of great ideological revolution, bodies get tugged in their programmed directions. He sat at his desk and began tinkering with bits and pieces the way a craftsman must, and he turned on the television. The tone of morning cable news is different from the austerity of the evening. At six o'clock, newspeople are buttoned all the way up and stoic in their recitation of however they depict their truth. But the mornings are loose and offer a friendly welcome to each new day, via some expertly paired duo contrived to deliver an air of sexy personality contrast. Philip used to distinguish evening and morning news, respectively, as proper news and entertainment. But he'd lately come to find both were just slightly different versions of the same thing. On this morning, though, the tone was firmer than usual. We're bringing you a sad update today, said one of the co-hosts that veteran journalist Parker Hatfield passed away last evening at his home in isolation. 
She went on to add that the death was caused by complications relating to the widespread virus and that he was survived by his wife and children. Whatever energy Philip had derived from the riveting story to which he'd escaped was instantly sucked away, and he found himself in the real world once again. It had been years since Parker Hatfield had been on television, and Philip hadn't thought about him often, nor had he ever the perspective to know just how fundamentally he'd been influenced by that day when they met in the laundromat when he was just a child. But he felt then as if he'd been told James Bond himself had died. It seemed impossible. Special Agent 00 Hatfield had survived wars and stings and riots and scandals, all without so much as a smudge on his collar. He always walked from the smoke with poise and steadfast instruction. How could some invisible idea in the air have been the thing to level him? How could this relatable icon of truth and power be beaten at a time when evil and injustice seemed to be so far ahead? Most confoundingly, how could someone from the television have turned out to be so human? What followed between the younger hosts was an exchange of personal memories of having been inspired by Parker Hatfield to enter the field of broadcast journalism, to do well and to do good. The pictures they showed were of Parker as most remembered him, handsome and confident. They showed him interviewing politicians and civilians alike at a wide range of international locations and, of course, at his home base, the well-lit oak desk at which he neutralized daily the level of common understanding. And the old pictures seemed to be alive and to look back at Philip, who, in the moment, felt like a boy again, a boy with a father he could learn from, and promised to care for. Not one photo or memory shared of the late Parker Hatfield was recent or personal. Though their reverence was clear, nothing broadcast seemed to indicate they really knew the man. After a few eulogizing minutes, the subject of the program shifted, and the co-hosts began talking about the state of the world. It quickly evolved into a daffy piece about some walruses at a temporarily closed-down aquarium having found the privacy to fall in love with each other. Philip couldn't believe they'd use the topic of a deadly virus to bridge between discussions of his childhood hero's death and some marine mammals cuddling. He angrily turned off the television and placed a phone call to Brian, the movie star. The call went to voicemail, and Philip disconnected and called back again. The second time, Brian answered. Phil? Good morning. I need to talk to you, said the watchmaker. You're going to have to be more patient, Phil. I can't have you calling my house every day. You left here with that Rolex, and that was you agreeing. Never mind that, Philip said, interrupting. That's not why I'm calling. Not really. Oh, it's not, said Brian. Then what can I do for you? I need a favor. You mentioned something about owning fast cars. Yeah, sure. I wonder if you might be open to taking me grocery shopping. I need to stock up for isolation, and I can't carry everything by hand. Brian's voice was hesitant. I really shouldn't be seen out of the house these days, Phil. If someone took a picture, it could get spun into this whole thing about how I'm not respecting distance requirements. Would be bad for the image, you understand. You can wear a mask, said Philip. Everyone is wearing masks. Or stay in the car for that matter, and just wait while I shop. You don't have anybody else who can drive you to the grocery store? No, but that's beside the point. 
I want to ride in a really fast sports car, and you owe me a favor. I don't owe you anything as long as you're holding my multi-million dollar Rolex. The Rolex is a lie, Brian. Don't you think I know that? What are you talking about? Oh, it's an expensive watch, but not worth millions. It's not the Submariner from Dr. No. You gave me fake papers, and you thought I wouldn't see the difference because I'm a watch guy and not a movie guy. But you didn't consider, Brian, that I am the watch guy. And so of course I know your Rolex wasn't made until two years after that movie came out. There came a long pause before Brian said, It's still a vintage Rolex, Phil. It's still worth a lot more money than I owe you. Right, but now our transaction is a bit more intriguing to others, wouldn't you say? I suspect there are some people who would love to hear about how you tried to con a private watch designer into thinking he was getting something that he wasn't. To say nothing of the industry folks who would be very curious about your forging authenticity papers using their studio seals. So you're blackmailing me? No, I'm not blackmailing you, said Philip. I'm just asking for a ride to the grocery store. Chapter 7 It's funny how rules and regulations and standards and practices can be sidelined to make way for new conflicting codes that have been deemed more timely and prudent. Just another way the greatest changes spawn smaller ones. The grocery stores were a venue where this was most apparent because in spite of all the closed doors and postponed motion, people still needed food. There had recently been a strong environmentally conscious push for shoppers to use their own bags in lieu of the one-time disposable ones. Suddenly, single-use plastics were all that was acceptable, and anything once touched had to be immediately discarded. The lungs and fingers of people were in more obvious peril than the long-wilting earth. Another thing was the masks. Probably since the days of stagecoach banditry, there was no conceivable situation in which a person instructively wearing a mouth covering could inconspicuously enter a large retailer and alarm no one. To the especially careful, which tended to be the poor soldiers exposed within these stores, it was almost more alarming for a person's mouth to be showing. There was little quality control over the masks people wore in public. They ranged from proper medical equipment to homemade designs, repurposed t-shirt sleeves, and sacrificial tube socks. As long as one showed they cared not to catch anything with their vulnerable presence and showed, too, that they didn't want those around them to catch anything either, the stores, in fact, felt quite safe, in spite of their looking as though to be overrun by outlaws from all walks of life. Philip Cogger knew he would raise no eyebrows re-entering Gabby's grocery store unrecognizably. He looked just like everyone else. Brian, the movie star, drove something Philip couldn't identify, and he swears now that Brian told him what it was, but he could never remember anything brand-specific. Perhaps his general disinterest in sports cars was convenient in preserving some libelous details. All he told the judge is that the car was white and very clean, and that it roared like a banshee. Brian collected Philip on the sidewalk outside time and place. It had been a day since their last phone call. I only have a short window, said the movie star. What other plans could you possibly have? asked the watchmaker. I thought you were forced to lay low. I still take meetings, Phil. I'm an important person responsible for lots of jobs. I can't just stop because the world slows down. Very well, said Philip, checking his watch. I shouldn't be long anyway. 
It was, of course, not his ordinary grocery day. He had purchased his necessary provisions for the week just two days before, and had since let his sleep pattern crumble to nothing. Between that and his work being so scant, Mr. Cogger was chaotically storming free from the constraints of his precious routines. Nothing was typical for him, besides his absolute determination. And ever since he saw Gabby working in that vicious environment, he was determined to somehow make it up to her. He had a plan to do so, and all it would require were a fast car and flawless timing. Brian was not his usual gregarious self. He was visibly miffed by having been caught trying to deceive Philip, and he was displeased about having to take the time to run this errand. It had been a long time since someone hired by Brian had told him how things were going to be, and it was tough to adjust, but he thought it best to comply. Philip told Brian the grocery store to which he wished to be driven. Brian said, That's where my family's groceries are from. Seems awful far out for you, though. I think it's the best one, shrugged Philip. Well, they keep it in order because their customers are of a certain tax bracket. Not that I do most of the shopping myself, usually. Not like us commoners, Brian groaned. You design and build some of the finest pieces of custom jewelry in the world, Phil. Stuff fit for kings, I'd hardly call you a commoner. Philip knew he was right, though he'd never considered a wristwatch to be jewelry. Certainly he believed that one should be stylish and tasteful, but to him a watch was a utility first, a servant to a master. Brian parked near the back of the lot and said, I don't want there to be any fuss. I'm going to stay here with my head down. You be as quick as possible. Philip said, As you know, I always am. Before exiting the inherently fussy vehicle, he fastened his mask and gloves, both of which he stocked in his shop. He also concealed something else from time and place, a compact blanket pouch of micro-tools, tweezers, and pins used for managing very tiny mechanisms. He checked his watch. It was exactly the time of day when he left the store two days prior. When he walked inside, the first thing he saw was the handsome face of a young Parker Hatfield in black and white, on the cover of a newspaper. Then he saw Gabby, tying her apron and subbing back in after a break. She did not see him. Then Philip saw the manager, this tree of a woman, exiting the front cash office and marching toward the exit, French fries in place of her pupils. He checked his watch and noted the 15 minutes available to him. The store was less busy on this day, steady but not a circus. Perhaps what had been colloquially called panic buying had subsided and people had found their patterns in the new age. Philip grabbed an empty cart, tossed in the nearest kumquat and a tray of chicken thighs, and he drove it the long way around the inner back wall of the building to arrive at the cash lane nearest the empty office. He checked his watch and noted the remaining 12 minutes available to him. The frontline staff, Gabby among them, were all laser-focused on their efficient handling of other people's items. The machinery of this store was so finely tuned by the expectations born of the danger in the air that no one had the time to be conscious of their surroundings. Philip checked his watch, noted the remaining 11 minutes available to him, and forcefully pushed the cart across the front walkway, crashing it into a corral of empty ones near the entrance. The noise broke the store's collective focus and pulled their heads opposite the direction of the watchmaker. Without the time to hesitate, he rounded the corner and slipped inside the door of the empty cash office. He checked his watch and noted the remaining 
10 minutes available to him. The office was cramped and fluorescent. The desk was a laminate slab with drilled holes for collecting computer cables. Above it, there was a grid of bunkers, each labeled with a different person's name. With a quick scan, Philip found Gabby's name among them. The space was littered with numeric printouts and stapled bundles of receipt paper, inboxes and outboxes, and a special scale for counting money. On the far wall was a great black safe. Upon finding the safe, Philip had planned to produce his pouch of tiny tools and get to work. But he could instantly see there was no use. For though there was nobody finer in the art of handling nanoscopic levers and pins with a minimal torque, no one who could more deftly engage a robust machine and enslave it to his will, Philip Cogger was a man of the automatic, not the digital. He stared at the silicone keypad and the piercing red light on the safe's door, and he felt his heart sink. He checked his watch and noted the remaining nine minutes available to him. His first instinct was to scour the office for any clues as to the combination. After all, it was not uncommon for people to leave their secrets in plain sight. Perhaps it was tacked to the wall or a computer screen. Granted, Philip didn't know what he was looking for. He didn't know if the combination was three digits or thirty, and the room was entirely covered in different numeric sequences. He couldn't try them all, and he couldn't be certain the safe wouldn't sound an alarm if wrong numbers were entered. Still, he had a few minutes. He inspected the creases of the safe door and could glean nothing. If only it had been an old-timey unit, like the one he had been imagining, he could surely isolate the unique combination with a few simple pokes and clicks. Naively, he suspected the rich person's grocery store to have the very same safe his father's laundromat had had so many decades before, in fact the same one he himself used in his own store. He remembered when the laundromat had been repossessed, the keys for the safe were misplaced, and it was young Philip who managed to work it open. Without the keys, he still used it to this day. He understood the old thing backwards and forwards, and it hadn't occurred to him it might have since been technologically bested. This was only the third private cash office in which he'd ever been, and it so reasonably had a digital safe. He thought, what if they had a power outage? How could they access their money then? He didn't bother to wonder also why the store would so badly need to access their money during a power outage. The fact was that time had left Philip Cogger behind. It had become a digital world, and it wasn't his default to presume anything but the analog because the analog was all he'd ever understood. Analog could be relied upon. Analog was as routine as he, and since there was nothing routine about his sneaking into the cash office of a major retailer and attempting to open their safe, he shouldn't have assumed it to be analog either. He checked his watch and noted the remaining nine minutes available to him. The thought of a power outage did give him an idea. He peered behind the safe and spotted, in the darkness, a connection between the black steel and the wall. Sure enough, the safe was plugged in. But the crevice was too narrow to fit his arm, and the plug was too far to be reached with his tools. He stretched his arms around the safe and hugged it close, widening his stance and putting his back into it. He began shifting the enormous weight onto the balls of his feet, and he pulled. For a moment, 
The only movement in the room was the tightening of Philip's insides. Helpfully, his gloves had a natural sort of grip and enabled him to attach to the glossy steel. With his next thrust of energy, his shoes skidded on the linoleum and dragged his knees harshly into the black door, branding them through his clothes with a veiny texture and striking a metallic clang. He checked his watch, noted the remaining nine minutes available to him, and repositioned for a final attempt. Philip poured every trace of might he had into disrupting the safe from its nest and moaned as it shifted on its right hind leg and spun just a few degrees counterclockwise toward him. He found his stance and jostled his shoulders to scatter the seizing, and he reached behind the safe and yanked the cord from the wall. The red light on the door went dark. Philip waited a few breaths before reconnecting the plug. With the return of the red light also came a soft tone, a beep that lasted no more than two or three seconds, but still felt anxiously long to the watchmaker, who was beginning to feel the severity of his actions. He checked his watch and noted the remaining nine minutes available to him. This was merely a hunch, but he thought by disconnecting and reconnecting the safe's power supply, he had possibly returned its entry combination to the factory setting. He took a deep breath and began pressing zeros. Each one emitted a gentle beeping noise, and after six presses, a final louder beep sounded, and a mechanical whir vibrated from within the door. And there was a click. Philip put his glove on the handle, pumped it downward, and the safe door glided open. He checked his watch and noted the remaining nine minutes available to him. Inside the safe were shelves stacked with cashier tills. Bills were sorted by value, and each till was matched with a total slip printed on carbon paper. From what few movies he'd seen, this moment felt familiar, the moment when a clever safe cracker reaches inside the steel casing and clutches the money with vulgarity, like a lion paws at a slab of meat. He didn't do exactly that, Instead, Philip reached for the furthest right section of the top till in the stack, and he withdrew an ample wad of minted currency, every bit as thick as the lion's lunch. Then he turned around and scanned again for Gabby's bunk. He thought for a second he might just give her the cash this way, stuff it in a makeshift envelope, and wait for her to find it on payday. She deserved it more than this wicked corporate chain, after all, and with this found supply, she wouldn't have to work in a place so unsafe. But Philip knew Gabby too well. Surely, if a large amount of money went missing from the safe and she found it in her bunk, she would return it honestly and desperately hope they didn't accuse her of anything. Alternatively, the store manager could find it in Gabby's bunk first and fire her on the spot. No, Philip thought. He'd have to pocket the wad now and find a way to covertly give it to Gabby a way in which she wouldn't find suspicious. He didn't want her to know he had taken it, or to know that he was even capable, however just it might have felt to him in the moment. He pocketed the cash and checked his watch and noted the remaining nine minutes available to him, and for the first time, he realized just how long this last minute was taking to pass. Still nine minutes. As Philip Cogger knew, time was not a relative thing. It moves along consistently always, and it makes no special accommodations when one veers from their routine. And oh, had Philip veered from his routine. He found himself in a mask and gloves, 
In the cash office of a grocery store far from home, his pockets plump from the money he'd just removed from a safe he had broken into. He hadn't been working. He hadn't been training Gabby. He hadn't been sleeping. And as he realized then, for the first time since he was young, and he stole his father's Citizen Classic hand wind from a pawn shop, the watch hadn't been wound for the day. For the first time since then, it had stopped, and time had moved ahead without it. With hot blood in his face, Philip turned swiftly to break away from the office but got no further. Perhaps the fluorescent lights had overtaken the long shadow of Gabby's manager, who stood in the doorway with an eyebrow raised and a greasy bag of french fries in her fist. Calmly, she asked him, Are you lost? Indeed he was. Philip and the manager stayed in the office together for the next fifteen minutes while they waited for the police to arrive. She asked him to take a seat, and he complied. She asked him if he took anything from the safe, and he might have lied and said no, but the safe door was still open, and so she likely wouldn't have believed him, and anyway, the police would find out the truth. He produced the wad of stolen bills and laid them on the counter. She asked if that was all he took, and he nodded. She also asked him not to remove his mask for her safety, but that the police would surely require him to. Wondering if his image remained concealed enough, Philip considered making a run for it, but he didn't. He sat quietly while the manager ate her fries. After their initial back and forth, the only time he spoke to the manager was to ask her for the time. She only shrugged as she popped in a fry, and this forced him to make an educated guess as he wound his watch. He hated not knowing for certain, but he believed it was deserved. When the police came, they frisked Philip Cogger and asked him to pull down his mouth cover and cuffed him. The two officers wore latex gloves, but otherwise didn't appear overly preoccupied by the concerns of distance or viral infection. The one whose handcuffs were used wore a name tag that read Abelson, and he was strangely patient, almost friendly. He guided Philip into the public space of the store where employees and customers alike were all staring. Philip intended to watch his shoes for the duration of his walk, but couldn't help to look in the direction of Lane 7, where Gabby stared, a meld of confusion and heartbreak in her eyes. He looked back at his shoes, which were suddenly blurry from tears. The watchmaker was escorted into the parking lot where the police vehicle was waiting curbside. As Officer Abelson opened the back door, Philip looked up again and spotted Brian, the movie star, in the distance, standing against his white roadster. The look on his face was unclear, but he stood handsome and famous in the broad daylight, and all eyes were on Mr. Cogger. Chapter 8 Even after the worst of the health crisis, when contagion seemed to wane and the gears began clicking back into function, certain customary practices stayed. Prisons had been sensitive during the outbreak, and on the other side, security was higher than ever. Philip Cogger's sentence was short compared to most, but long considering all the factors. He was a first-time offender, nonviolent thief, who cooperated with both the victim of his crime and the police every step of the way. A case could be made that his actions, while misguided, were motivated by good intentions. That is, a better lawyer than I could have made that case. Gabby's father was a better lawyer than I, for example, but he was not only retired and quite unwell, 
It might have been a legal conflict of interest considering Philip only tried to steal the money to benefit Gabby. That's how Mr. Cogger ended up with me, and how he went from making watches to doing time. But not before he had his 15 minutes. Local media devoured the tale of the mild-mannered shop owner who cracked a grocery store safe and tried to make off with a pocket full of cash. In a backwards way, it was a sort of human interest story, granted one with a rather discouraging subtext. The typical brand of news in those times had grown so morose that the appetite for simple, classic Robin Hood antics was ample. The watchmaker became a folk hero of sorts, which might in fact have disfavored him in the eyes of the system. Signs were hung and protests were held. Free father time became the common refrain. If no other good came from it, the publicity generated for Philip's business was priceless. But the machine, perceivably responsible for reducing upstanding citizens to petty thieves, was being openly vilified, so they decided to make an example out of Philip Cogger. For so forgivable a crime, his experience inside was colored by the ongoing safety precautions post-virus. The trial and his sentencing occurred over many months, but even then, the minimum security prison where he was to serve his time remained very strict about guests. There was really only one person Philip wanted to see anyway, and as much as he didn't wish to expose her to the inside walls of a correctional facility, he knew she couldn't be stopped, and he was indeed overjoyed when she came. Mr. Cogger, is this my fault? asked Gabby. No, my dear, he said. Please don't think that way. I guess I'm just confused, she said. You've always talked about what's right and what's wrong, that one must follow the rules. Yes, and that one must sit for his punishment when he breaks those rules. So please trust me when I say I'm happy to be in here and that nothing is on you whatsoever. I suppose I believe the second part, she said. In a way, Mr. Cogger was being entirely truthful. He was embarrassed and remorseful but not so terribly hating his time in the facility. It was operated based on stringent routines, something he felt he needed to be reacquainted with. He had been assigned to work in the laundry room, where he spent his days cycling through bedsheets, towels, and jumpsuits. The machines and schedules were things he understood, and in the time when he wasn't working, he could still keep up with the news on the caged-over zenith that was propped in the ceiling corner of the lunch hall. There were clocks and buzzers that kept him ever grounded in time, and since he couldn't wear his father's citizen classic in prison, Gabby wore it for him on the outside. She was another reason he was feeling content. Even though he couldn't gift her a large supply of cash, the hours had freed up at time and place, and she could run the store in his absence. Granted, large custom orders had to be backdated pending his eventual return, but Gabby had grown quite adept at general watch maintenance, and the occasional minor repair. Are you angry with me? He asked her from behind the glass. No, she said. I'm only sorry you were so alone then. If we had been talking more, I would have noticed that you had gotten a bit out of sorts. It was a horrible time when we were pulled apart from one another. It's true. It was very lonely. I think sometimes we lash out when we feel powerless said the watchmaker, even the privileged among us. Do you mean Brian? asked Gabby, her eyes getting wide. Because he came into the store one day and said he finally had the money to pay you, I didn't know what he was talking about, so I told him to return when you're back. Did you allow him to break contract? 
it was more like a trade. A trade for what? Never mind. I'll deal with that when I'm out. What I meant, actually, is that I have a history of doing the wrong thing, the hurtful thing, when I feel I've been backed against a wall. What do you mean? The watch you're wearing, my father's watch, Philip explained. Still technically belongs to a pawn shop where I stole it right from under the owner's nose. This was decades ago. Gabby looked at him, considering how little perhaps she really knew this man. But Philip did not feel judged. He was released for good behavior after serving narrowly more than two-thirds of his sentence. The regulations concerning how distant people were to remain were mostly dissolved by then. The world would never be the same again. But people were beginning to adjust to their new reality. It had been a devastating world experience. Lives were lost, as were livelihoods. And these were blows from which no one may easily rally. Still, it was a gift to be able to be together again. Before she hugged Mr. Cogger, Gabby held out the Citizen Classic SS hand-wind wristwatch, but he asked her to hold on to it. Maybe I'll make myself something new to wear, he told her, and you can help. In fact, he did have another watch to wear in the meantime. The Rolex Submariner, on loan from Brian the Movie Star, was not an authentic James Bond timepiece from film, but it was still among the most valuable items he had ever been in contact with. Still, Philip knew he couldn't wear this watch. He needed to cash it in for what was still owed to him by Brian, and especially now that he'd lost much of his year to a prison sentence and still had outstanding legal bills from yours truly. I always liked Philip Cogger. I felt he and I had something in common. As lads, we both spent a good deal of time in our father's businesses, admiring their steady hands. In both our cases, it was witnessing harsh injustices befall our fathers that motivated our own career aspirations. People would steal from my father. It happened all the time. It's a reality for those in the business of trafficking pre-owned items and money lending. My father operated a small metropolitan pawn shop, and he ran it honestly. But because of his ethics, he was often exploited, and yet the cultural stigma around his line of work inhibited his access to quality legal representation. That's why I became a lawyer, to make up for the one my father never had. As much as I like Philip Cogger, it's because of my love for my father that I can't just let him off the hook. Not that he'd want me to anyway. Though he did, as it turned out, have something else in mind. On the afternoon of his release, he rode the train around the city rather than going home. He stared peacefully at the industrial tapestry swiftly pulling backward. When the buildings declined and transformed into housetops, he stayed aboard for the turnaround and watched the city grow back into greatness again. He had everywhere to go and no place to be, and there was no watch on his wrist to tell him so. The Rolex was stashed in the drawer of his work desk back at time and place. He went there when the sun began setting. From habit, he flicked on the television first. It had been left on a celebrity news network that Gabby enjoyed. It's all the same, thought Mr. Cogger. All the news is entertainment. They rolled footage of Brian the movie star smiling on a red carpet while photographic flashes peppered him. The voiceover provided an enthusiasm that was essentially just shouting. The actor is set to begin working on his new film, based on his personal experience witnessing a robbery during last year's health crisis. Brian says this story about those who take advantage of others during a difficult time is near and dear to his heart. 
This revelation might have horrified Philip Cogger. It might have embarrassed and enraged him to be so used in this way, so misrepresented. But he'd been through all this in his mind already. We do what we do to get by. We do what we do for the people we love. And we make mistakes. And we let ourselves be carried away by the passions we harvest. We know what's right and what's wrong. And we know we only have so much time. So if we have those passions in harvest and we have those people we love, why make time for anything else? Mr. Cogger didn't call Brian the movie star for the cash he was owed or to litigate the specifics of this new film. Instead, he called me. Your fee is in the mail, he said. You'll find it slightly exceeds the value of our outstanding payment. Please consider the surplus a gift. I hope you'll accept it. A few days later, I signed for a small package along with a note that read, I've owed your family a watch for many years. Inside the package was a 1964 Rolex Submariner. I logged Mr. Cogger's case as pro bono, and I gave the watch to my father. He's worn it every day since. On that first night back in his shop, Philip ended his call with me and turned the channel of his television from the news station to one he never watched classic movies. They were airing a marathon of old James Bond films, and he stayed up all night watching them. 